Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to The Sediment, the official ASPN conference podcast. This is the first virtual ASPN conference, and although we aren't together and are exhausted after a long day of Zoom talks, we hope this podcast can provide you an opportunity to filter all the information you've received and come away with little pellets of knowledge, The Sediment. Today is Tuesday, May 4th, 2021, our last episode for this year. Let's take a listen. Andrew. Hi, I'm Ashley Rawson. I'm a newly minted Pete's nephrologist like Sutha M. Um, I am working at Our Lady of the Lake Children's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And the fun fact about me is um, during fellowship, I was known as the 80-year-old in a 30-year-old's body because I like to collect antique typewriters and read and knit. <laughs> Do you still find time to knit? Um, well, I'm not very good. So I do do it, but I haven't completed many projects. (laughs) Hi, my name is Sudha M. Uh, I'm a newly minted pediatric nephrologist. I work in East Tennessee Children's Hospital. Uh, Fun fact about me is I paint. (laughs) And after, (laughs) after spoiling so many work clothes, I switched to PowerPoint, which is my new addiction. Wow, technology and everything you do, Sudha M. Hey, I'm Sudha Garimala, and I am the podcast editor this year for the ASPN conference. Um, I'm also inspired to give you a fun fact this evening because Aviva Goldberg told us yesterday that she was in a movie. So I was mm-hmm. also in a Bollywood movie <laughs> when I was eight wow. years old as, <laughs> I love an extra, as an extra, uh, you know, split second appearance, but I'm sure it made a great impression. Happy to have everybody on today. <laughs> Um, I'm Ibrahim Shatat. Um, I'm uh, right now affiliated with Sidra Medicine in Doha, Qatar. Um, fun fact is, um, although I'm, I was the previous chair of the ASPN Communications Committee, I had a Twitter account for a long time. I have to admit that until now, I don't have an Instagram account. So I need all the help from the ladies and the team to get me on. <laughs> Get Ibrahim on Instagram stat. I can help you with that. I don't know. I'm still struggling with Twitter. (laughs) Uh, Hi, I'm Maury Pinsk. I'm a pediatric nephrologist from Winnipeg, Canada. I'm the program chair for the ASPN 2021 uh, meeting. Uh, Fun fact about me. um, I actually, uh, as a a youngster, I took up uh, the hobby of calligraphy and actually paid my way through my undergrad doing uh, wedding invitations and things like that. Um, I was uh, unceremoniously replaced when uh, laser printers became uh, an issue. So I've now declared my real age uh, as to when things actually happen. And now I just have a, a, a lifelong hatred for the font of Comic Sans. So that's about me. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, I can't abide Comic Sans either. <laughs> I did write a note on Comic Sans and got yelled by an attending once. <laughs> and so you should. Even though we are pediatricians, right? That's, do, still, that's where we draw the line. We do not need to look like everything is written in red crayon. Everybody, I'm Don Batiski. I'm at Emory University in Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And uh, uh, this is always hard. Uh, fun facts. Uh, I'm a closet Elvis fan. I did my fellowship in Memphis and, and still have a, uh, an affinity toward, toward Elvis. Um, and had, unlike being in a Bollywood movie, I got interviewed by Headline News on CNN because I happened to be on the night that the Elvis stamp was issued in front of the gates of Hearst. Wow, cool. that's amazing. You are joining our list of minor celebrities who also part-time <laughs> pediatric nephrology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do residency in as well. So I love Graceland. Okay, I am Stephanie Jernigan. I am also at uh, Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in uh, Atlanta. And I will stay with the artistic theme and uh, that I am a potter. So I do pottery. And so, unfortunately, those of you who are just listening cannot see. But this is what my fellow who is graduating this year will be receiving. It is not glazed yet, but it will be. And that's, uh, beautiful. that's, that's my hobby. 
and my and my stress relief. Let me just say that as well. So hi, I am Tammy Brady. I am at um, I'm a peace nephrologist at Johns Hopkins, um, where I'm also the medical director of the hypertension program. So my fun fact is, um, so I'm a Bronx girl. I was born in the Bronx and then I went back to the Bronx for residency. And even though I've lived in Maryland um, <laughs> for almost 20 years, I still consider myself a Bronx girl. Um, my grandparents um, and my father actually lived on Sedgwick Avenue for decades, which happens to be the birthplace of hip hop. So that's my fun fact. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andrew South, a pediatric nephrologist at Wake Forest School of Medicine and Brenner Children's Hospital. And I direct our hypertension clinic and our neonatal kidney clinic. Um, I'm going to also stay on the, um, the art theme. So I was a competitive ballroom dancer in college and actually got third place in rumba. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. We have to all unmute and give you a big standing ovation for that. And we will need a demonstration in Denver. <laughs> Along with the Latin dancing that's supposed to happen. Yes. I think time. I still got it. That sounds great. We'll have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's, it's just amazing through the sediment. We are getting to know more and more about this amazing community of nephrologists that we have who are also doing so many other things in the, the field of arts. So this is, a, this is a great group of people, you all. All right. So, um, Don, we're going to start with you. Since the Ship Ahoy session happened today, um, how do you feel like the session went overall? And what were your impressions? You know, I thought it went really well. Um, the, that ship started to sail about a year ago. Um, as you know, uh, last year PAS was supposed to be in Philadelphia and uh, because of COVID things got totally canceled. And you know, this is a, a study that really has been um, a long time in, in coming and you know, it's, all of the data still isn't out yet. So we, we got a nice, um, very detailed look at, at what they've been looking for so far. So um, SHIP AHOY is, is a clever um, acronym for basically a study of high blood pressure in pediatrics, uh, adult hypertension onset in youth. And uh, this was a study that has been dreamed about and thought about and planned for, for many years. I say this uh, as, a, as a representative of the International Pediatric Hypertension Association as well. And you know, it took a while to uh, find a, a funding source basically, uh, but we, we had four speakers today, uh, Bonnie Faulkner from Jefferson, walked us through the, uh, the background on the study and how the study was designed and the methods and uh, very complicated with a, with a lot of moving parts, but we're starting to see the effects um, that, or the data that's coming out of this. Uh, Elaine Urbina at Cincinnati Children's uh, then uh, talked a lot about uh, the target organ effects uh, related to the heart. She's a, she's a pediatric cardiologist and director of their pediatric cardiology, preventative cardiology and um, really has always um, come armed with an amazing array of, of um, beautiful slides that talk about a lot of the, the detailed um, imaging and, and sort of cardiovascular uh, functional studies like pulse wave velocity and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we shifted to Joseph Lynn at uh, Seattle Children's uh, talking about uh, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and, and target organ effects. And then Mark Landy, who I uh, had the pleasure of working with on his R01 project, Neurocognition in Hypertension, uh, also uh, sort of added his uh, view uh, on the neurocognitive aspects of hypertension. So what we're really going to be able to uh, definitively say is that uh, high blood pressure in youth does have some very uh, notable effects on, on children and their bodies. And we don't have to necessarily wait for the hard cut points of strokes and MIs and onset of renal failure because of, of blood pressure. And, and the hope is that we will be able to sort of prove that, that yes, this is affecting kids and it's affecting our youth um, at a point in their time where we may be able to intervene. So some of the question and answer uh, session really shifted toward the end uh, talking about, well, where do we go now? Now that, you know, they're still mining the data, they're still publishing, um, the, the results of this study, and we, we will hear more, but uh, I think this will hopefully 
Standus in a good position as a launch pad for then doing some intervention studies to hopefully see some reversibility here. Um, they recruited nearly 500 uh, subjects. So this was a really, um, I know it was a labor of love for all those that were involved. And, and really they've done a great job of, of keeping the, the cohort together and, and, and collecting this, this very useful information. Absolutely. I think it definitely has the potential to change the things we're doing in clinic. And also the study is such a good example of collaboration within the pediatric community, especially the pediatric nephrology community. So many centers and so many different nephrologists being involved. You know what? I was a bit provocative in, in the Q&A session. And, and I, I also hope that we can, when we can, can show that there are effects that we somehow get the attention of, of people who are taking care of these kids before they send me, a 15-year-old with a BMI of 35. I mean, clearly there were some hints long before they came to hypertension clinic, even if they had to wait two months to see me, that something could and should have been done. I, I think that that's where I hope we can go with maybe some policy changes and some arming the people that are in the trenches with some, some things to do to intervene before they get to the point where they're having target organ effects. Absolutely. And uh, Don, do you think that the data coming out of this study is what will convince the U.S. Preventive Task Force? You know, that, that came up, and I've read a few articles about that in the editorials that have come from that. You know, a lot of it is how you frame the question. I know Joseph Flynn wrote an editorial. Bonnie Flynn and, her, and Elaine Urbina wrote an art, uh, editorial as well. Um, I, I don't know that it will. It, it might. Again, we are not seeing in this age group strokes and heart attacks and, and, heart, and kidney failure related to uncontrolled hypertension like we see as hard cut points in adults. But, but I think it will nudge us closer to that point where at least we have an evidence base to show in a well-designed, really looking at early signs, early markers of, of target organ effects that, that there is an impact here. And you know whether we change their mind or not doesn't matter. I think we still have to do the right thing. I think Elaine and, um, and um, Bonnie in their editorial comment about you know, the, this is our future, the, the, the youth are our future and where we need to preserve these precious resources. Sure, absolutely. Next question for you. They, um, there was some discussion during the Q&A session regarding athletes and hypertension. Um, and we think somebody had asked about left ventricular mass index in athletes and hypertension. What are your recommendations for them? You know, I think Elaine took that question. And Tammy, did you ask that question? I, I, I forget who asked the question. I, I do remember that. Um, yeah, challenge about LVH and LV mass in, in bigger patients is it can be linked to the bigger body and the obesity. It could be related to the hypertension. Um, I think that the clinical practice guideline published in 2017 nicely says that, you know, stage one hypertension sh alone should not be something that limits activity. Stage two hypertension, while it's being controlled and, and being non-sedentary is part of the, 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 the means by which you could control blood pressure. So, I, I guess I'm not exactly sure that I'm answering your question aside from saying that I think um, we don't echo everybody on arrival and you know, we're still, I think, gathering a, maybe a set of best practices. Um, and yet I do think that uh, when we see um, LVH, we, we, we know we need to step up our therapy and, and be sure that we, we stay on these patients. Um, it may come up later. I, I think um, the last talk I heard today in the, in the abstract session um, that I'm, I won't be a, a spoiler here, but shows how challenging it is to, to stay on these patients to, to make sure that they're adherent to whatever therapy we suggest for them, be they lifestyle management or, um, or pharmacologic management. So I think... Um, I, I think that exercise is good. I think it's important that that, that be part of the, the regimen of treatment and frankly, part of, of good, healthy living. Um, so I think that uh, when we see the LVH, we have to be a bit more uh, intentional about uh, encouraging adherence to whatever treatment we're prescribing. Some of the methods we learned about earlier in PAS. Sorry, yeah. Tammy, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was just gonna say, I think for me, the most challenging um, 
clinically is when I'm presented with the, um, the pediatric patient with obesity who wants to play football <laughs> and is hypertensive. And I think, um, I find it challenging because, you know, is it the, their BMI that's most contributing to the LV mass index? Is it their blood pressure that's most contributing? And, you know, in those situations, you know, really trying to help um, them learn these good, healthy behaviors early on, because maybe they'll have a chance of sticking with it and um, continuing with those behaviors uh, as they enter into adulthood. And so I think it is challenging. As I understand the recommendations, you know, if you have stage two hypertension and LVH, well, you really have to get that blood pressure under control before you can technically clear them. And of course the pediatrician is looking for you to clear them, but I find those patients in particular to be the most motivated to take their mm -hmm. medications. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, it's just really trying to find um, it's, a, you know, again, this is where the art of medicine sort of comes into play and, um, you know, also trying to partner with your patient to see what it is that motivates them and trying to, again, I think in this pediatric group, working to instill these heart healthy behaviors early on so that we can promote cardiovascular health, not, not treating cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think the Q and a session also gave us a little uh, window into why we are so stuck with this LVMI of 51, because it's the only number for which we have data. And it was interesting to see that even amongst the people making the guidelines, there was so much thought uh, placed onto the fact that children should probably have a lower number, but we just don't have the data to back it. So that was interesting as a practicing nephrologist to hear that, you know, we see this all the time in clinic and you're like, should we really be using the same number? And um, the reason we are using it is because we don't have data for other numbers. So that was interesting. Well, and, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we have what we have, right? We, we try our best to practice evidence-based medicine when we have the evidence. Sometimes we don't have the evidence. You know, I heard in the last session, some comments made about, you know, ABPM as the gold standard. And while it's becoming that, every time I interpret an ABPM, I say, the normals I'm using are from about 1,100 white German children. Exactly. <laughs> None of those patients. So, you know, it's, it's what we have. It's, it's guidance. I agree with Dr. Brady. It's the art over the science. Um, I, there probably isn't a huge difference between white German children and others, but I know that I'm comparing apples with pomegranates and, you know, they're both red, but they're a little bit of a different animal or different fruit. So. Right. And I know that Andrew had asked that question, right, about the diastolic um, measurements. And first time I paid attention to E over E prime, I had no idea what that <laughs> was. Do I need to know about that? Andrew, you can answer. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So this is something that I've kind of wrestled with and, and struggled with my whole short career <laughs> in nephrology. Um, and, and getting to Dr. Flynn's point from earlier, it, it's all about how you ask the question. What question are you asking? And I think we in the field have, have historically not done a great job of that. And I, of course, include myself. Um, and we, you know, we're learning to do better and have the most rigorous methods that we can. And that has to start with what is your research question of interest? Um, so for me, when I when I got here in, in, in 2017, we developed our hypertension clinic. Um, so it's been going on for over four years now. And we worked with um, our pediatric echocardiography lab and our, our pediatric cardiologist, and we developed a standard hypertension protocol for echoes. So any kid who, any patient who is referred to the pediatric echo lab for um, any kind of hypertensive disorder, uh, all we have to do in the order is write hypertension protocol. And the sonographers know exactly what measurements and windows to use. And whichever cardiologist that is interpreting the study knows to use the standard form in terms of uh, the exact interpretation paragraph that we want. So you don't have to scroll through the entire report to see, um, you know, <laughs> what various measures are because we get burned on that from time to time. Um, and But also not just looking at LVH uh, and, you know, being definitive about how we define um, LVH and which LVMI measurements we use. But we're, we're trying to look at every single aspect of how hypertension may affect the heart, including diastolic function. Um, so we're looking at left atrial size and dilation. We're looking at the aortic root dilation. Um, we're looking at um, the, the ventricular septum. Uh, so we're kind of taking a pretty comprehensive phenotypic approach to our echoes. And 
Uh, what, when we started the hypertension clinic, we also started our hypertension registry, which Don has been a part of uh, at Emory. Uh, and that's one of the questions that he and I really wanted to ask is, you know, how can we best phenotype these, these patients? And in particular, those patients who have a hypertensive disorder that's not definitively hypertension. Um, and so that, that's kind of a really interesting line of investigation that we're able to start looking at. Um, and I think hopefully we'll get some more information about that and come to a much more comprehensive consensus in that regard. Right. So much more to learn. I'll just say that since we've gone to open notes and patients can read all of our notes, I'm getting a lot more calls about abnormal parameters and echoes than with anything to do with, you know, what I was doing in clinic that day. So, uh, yeah, I think that it's important that we all educate ourselves about the um, granular details of what we are actually measuring with these uh, heart echoes. I also had, well, one question I wanted to ask, was there any preliminary data in the Shipahoy study that surprised you? Not really. Um, on one hand, um, I, I knew how much effort it took to get even to where they are now. So um, I could almost say I'm surprised that they, they were able to finish, but yet I also know the determination and the uh, sort of perseverance of, of the individuals involved. So in, in many ways, I'm, I'm not surprised that they were able to pull this off. But, but I think that, um, I, you know, like any good research, it brings up a lot more questions that we still have yet to answer and always leaves that caveat in the, you know, in the final paragraph of the manuscript, we have more, more things that we need to study and more research is necessary. So I think that, you know, the best part is that they were able to pull this off and, and hopefully we'll be able to, you know, use this as a launch pad to learn a bit more. So there was one thing that kind of surprised me um, with Shipahoy and pleasantly surprised me because hopefully it'll make things easier. But the fact that load really wasn't associated um, mm. with LVH um, and that adding load to, to blood pressure um, didn't help you predict LVH. Um, you know, I think I really struggle with the current schema on um, classifying children according to their ambulatory blood pressure monitoring results. And so I'm really hopeful since load doesn't add anything that that will make those tables easier to, uh, or simpler and it'll make it easier to interpret um, ABPM. I mean, I think, um, I, I don't think I'm uh, alone in that, but um, that was that was surprising yeah. to me. Absolutely, but also a relief because sometimes you don't know what to do with these reports when the only thing there there's the systolic load that is making you call somebody severe ambulatory hypertension when your gut feeling is it's not, you know. So that's good that uh, hopefully we could not get a clear answer out of our panelists, but I think that maybe something's coming down the pipeline about removing that, right? Well, and yet it also makes you wonder, like, is, is you know, in the range of, of phenotypes, is, is there something about that subject that's a bit different than the person that has absolutely no love? You know, the, the, the old white coat hypertension is nothing. And now we're thinking, well, my white coat hypertension is maybe this intermediate phenotype. And these were often the patients that when, when Mark and I were working on the neurocognitive study, we would have, you know, we had controls. And these were you know, normal kids recruited from a pediatric office who were never thought to have high blood pressure and on an ABPM study would have a load that was like 30%. Yet the overall 24-hour blood pressure was, was normal. We couldn't say they were definitively normal based on definitions back then. Um, so they were, you know, about a third of the, the recruited control subjects were, were excluded. So um, it certainly makes it easier for interpretation, but leaves you wondering when, when will they someday manifest a different story? And then again, one of the abstracts earlier that, you know, there are even the re reproducibility of, of studies isn't always, you know, a hundred percent correlated. So lots of things to think about. I was just thinking that, yeah. So one mm -hmm. of the, um, the, the abstracts in our session was looking at that reproducibility and there were some that just really didn't correlate at all. They didn't mm. agree. Um, and I do think, you know, some kids just may have that increased blood pressure variability, which may lead to the increased load. And, um, you know, I think what my, my, my practice pattern has been, um, uh, since I sort of started hearing about the murmurings of the ship Ahoy results is, 
you know, making sure that those kids don't get lost. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, this looks good right now, but I want you to make sure that you come back and get checked in a year or whatever time period is appropriate, because I want to make sure that you don't kind of progress. Because to your point, Dr. Patinsky, like it really, um, there's something different about those kids potentially mm-hmm. that makes them have such big swings. So we'll be waiting eagerly for some more clarity on the situation. We also heard today that Dr. Susan Firth accepted the SPR Maureen Andrew Mentor Award. And that is a great honor for our, you know, for her personally, but also for all of us as pediatric nephrologists, because we all strive to be good mentors to our students, our fellows and junior faculty. And she has been certainly been an inspiration as a mentor to many of our um, nephro- pediatric nephrology faculty, some of whom are in this panel today, <laughs> right? Uh, so uh, just wanted to give, uh, you know, congratulations and a shout out to Dr. Firth. It's a great honor and we're very happy for you. As a former mentee, um, I can really, um, you know, she's so deserving and she's really just the epitome of the perfect mentor. I mean, she really um, manages to get the best out of you um, and, and really is unbelievably kind and available. And so I was so happy and not surprised that she got it. And so, yes, I mean, Congratulations, so well-deserved. She's really a gem and we're lucky to have her in pediatrology for sure. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about secondary hypertension. So um, Tammy, Andrew and Dawn, one of you, like all of you, if you could say what's your favorite topic in that, in today's symposium. Oh, tough call. You know, I've, I'm always fascinated by renovascular hypertension. You know, it's like every time I see a patient with that condition, it's just a little bit different than every other one. And I, I, I came away thinking, you know, it just felt so good to not be alone. You know, the, we had um, Michael Ferguson from Boston Children's and uh, Zud Modi at University of Michigan, um, you know, talk about the topic from a couple of different angles. And um, I, one thing that strikes me, in my memory banks is um, Michael's, um, he was talking about the medical management and he threw up the slide with just like every drug class known to man kind of on one, one, one slide. It's like, okay, uh, I'm not the only one that has to kind of think about this. And, but, but it's, it's always challenging. Uh, it's, it's always um, challenging to, I think, explain to families. Um, but I, I'm grateful that we have access to being able to show families images. Um, at, at our center, we work with a, a really good set of uh, three interventionalists that are extremely available. Um, you know, they call you after they've done a procedure, they follow up, they're, they're really good about that and good with the families. But, but that was um, probably one of my more favorite parts of, of that session. And to your point, I also really enjoyed his slide um, that had sort of the algorithm and had lots of feedbacks, <laughs> um, how you should approach um, a patient with renal vascular hypertension. Um, because like you said, I think I had that same feeling like we're not, I'm not alone, that this mm-hmm. is a very challenging um, condition to treat. Um, so yes, I echo that. Um, I think my personal favorite um, session was um, the one regarding obstructive sleep apnea, mm-hmm. um, particularly as a, you know, one of my main clinical and research focus is dealing with obesity-related hypertension. Um, and so, you know, in my obesity hypertension clinic, um, we see, you know, a very big proportion of children with that, um, with that diagnosis that is either undiagnosed um, uh, or is diagnosed and they are not adherent to CPAP. <laughs> um, and, um, and so it's a, it's a big struggle, but one of the reasons I really liked that part of the, um, the session was that I, I think it's important to raise awareness and to keep um, others, um, keeping that on your forefront of your mind, that this is something to consider, particularly um, when you have um, challenging hypertension to treat. And then also with uh, patients who have comorbid obesity to not forget to ask about sleep um, and not to forget to ask about snoring and witness apneas and daytime somnolence. And, and so I really enjoyed that. Can I ask a question about that? So I'm curious, since you have that clinic at your institution, do, do you in that clinic sort of take care of that obesity piece as well? Or do you have another clinic that you work with? I know here in Atlanta, we have a Strong for Life clinic, which is sort of our obesity um, clinic for weight loss. And I mean, even to the extent of, of bariatric surgery when it's needed, do you, do you have something like that as well? Or I'd be curious if other, if other institutions have that. 
Yeah. So my clinic is, um, is multidisciplinary and I should say is my, my great joy. <laughs> um, it's, so it's multidisciplinary. The children who come to see me and young adults who come to see me come for a two and a half hour clinic session. And so they rotate, um, between, uh, four or more providers. So they'll see me, they see, um, a dietitian, and then they see a behavioral psychologist who really, to me, honestly, is the most important part of the clinic because, um, that individual really works with them to uh, identify barriers, to kind of assess for um, you know, their willingness and openness to change, um, and then to really talk to them about ways to sort of implement all the heart-healthy lifestyle things I'm recommending um, and how to sort of implement it in their lifestyle. Um, and then they all see a physical therapist who assesses for um, you know, uh, any kind of musculoskeletal reasons that they can't be active. And we've sent kids to ortho from clinic because they had an undiagnosed skiffy and we've had kids, you know, need to get additional therapy sessions. And, um, and so after they get assessed by them, then they also get their own sort of personalized workout plan. And, and so they come and see us every three months. And so there's not a obesity specialist per se, um, but I screen for all of the comorbid conditions and I have a great working relationship where I can refer very easily, um, you know, to um, whatever subspecialist they need. That's a great question, Stephanie. I think we can do a whole podcast about how to care for children with obesity. So we're going to have Tammy back on, I think, one time, because I think we all struggle, especially in smaller centers where, you know, resources are not easy to come by. Putting together these sort of multidisciplinary uh, teams takes a lot of effort and uh, we all need ideas about how to fund them. So it'll be nice to hear how everyone's doing it successfully. So, but that's, that's really, I think, a huge part of everything that went on today is taking care of children who have obesity and hypertension, right? <laughs> right. And well, you know, for, for whatever it's worth, I think we're all aware that um, the COVID pandemic has not helped, right? That we are seeing more and more children um, with sedentary and unhealthy lifestyles and eating more and obesity is just, it's becoming the same pandemic that the pandemic is. And so it's, it's really, really an issue. So a timely sort of topic. So um, I was planning about something in related to this. What I noticed was most of the kids, they don't know how to fix their meals, basically. They just go grab everything. So I was planning to do with our nutritionists like a week long course on how to fix your breakfast, how to. So I'm planning this. <laughs> if I end up successfully doing it, I'll let you guys know. Still in infant or I should say embryonic stages. <laughs> I know so that's Actually, fun. luckily, um, uh, so uh, with our med school at USC, we actually have a lifestyle medicine track for med school. And so that those resources have come in very handy. So that's one thing that we can explore is through the medical schools, they do have lifestyle curriculums. Our med students all learn how to cook as part of med school. And <laughs> yeah, and uh, so they do. I mean, it's a great, neat little uh, track in med school. And most of my summer students come through that program. So the three posters I had at PAS are all by these med students from the lifestyle um, uh, track. And Stephanie, you're right. Actually, all three uh, posters were derailed by COVID um, because last summer the students were not uh, you know, able to do, they were working remotely. But we were able to show the same thing is how much uh, or increase in caffeine intake, increase in uh, the uh, sodium intake, and also melatonin use went up dramatically. There was mm. a New York Times um, 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 like a special feature which talked about 50% uh, of uh, parents admitted that they were giving over-the-counter melatonin to their children for sleep mm -hmm. in April of 2020. So I can imagine it's even worse now. So this is uh, certainly an area that, like I said, I don't want to hijack the whole um, podcast because it's one of my interests. So, so But uh, certainly there was a lot of food for thought in today's symposia and poster sessions based on this. I was going to say that uh, one of the things that also helps is um, teaching families how to shop, not just cook. Um, uh, we deal with a, a fair number of families that have uh, food insecurity, not just um, like food insecurity because they're geographically remote. So getting food up north is, is very difficult and it's very expensive. So sometimes uh, having our nutritionist uh, 
um, contact the families and, and some, and she's actually been, you know, on the phone shopping with them while they're in the grocery store, helping them read labels, uh, to show them how, how to choose lower sodium alternatives and things like that. But, um, in better resource centers, uh, actually taking people into the shopping marts and, uh, showing them what healthy food looks like. Uh, and our, our dietitian actually also provides recipes and, um, for um, heart healthy eating, things like that. So I, for sure that's a big part of it, but I think it has to be in the context of what families can actually access for food. It's great if we uh, tell them they should eat green leafy vegetables and fruits, but uh, if they don't have access to green leafy vegetables and fruits, it's a problem. Yeah, that's a great point. And we should definitely have a podcast devoted to those topics. So it's great because um, I just, I'm coming up with ideas then how to further build our hypertension program. Um, so, you know, we have some, some resources in our clinic, which is great, but but not nearly the resources I would like. I, I asked for physical therapy and they're like, I don't know who you would talk to. Uh, so that would be a nice thing. Um, we are fortunate, so we have our own nutritionist and we try to have her see every single patient at least once when they're first uh, coming into clinic. Um, but we are uh, really fortunate at, at Brenner Children's to have um, the Brenner Fit Clinic and then the, um, along with it, the level one clinic, which is for those patients who are most at cardiovascular risk if they have dyslipidemia um, or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we do screen for. Um, that's run by Dr. Joseph Skelton, who's a pediatric obesity expert, and, and he's fantastic. Um, so they have a, a very multidisciplinary um, approach. And so they actually teach cooking classes to the entire family um, at the YMCA and, and things like that. So um, it's, it's obviously limited to those who live in Winston-Salem. So none of our patients who live two, three hours away, they're less likely to be able to go to that. And it's a pretty big time commitment, a lot of uh, nights um, as well. But for those patients that are able to participate, it's been a great resource for them. And we developed a really nice collaboration with, with our uh, pediatric obesity colleagues. And obviously they send a lot of uh, patients our way for referrals and vice versa. Um, and it's, it's been nice to kind of build that collaboration with them. Yes, Perfect. so lots of things to think about, but I think we are going to, in the interest of time, move on to talk to Dr. Shatat. Right, Sudha? So, hey, um, Ibrahim, I have uh, got to know about you, and then I fondly call you father of ASP and social media. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> my question for you is, what made you start podcast in the first place? Well, um, that's first a great honor to be called the father of social media at ASPN. But um, it's one of the examples where um, leadership uh, believes in ideas uh, of junior members of ASPN. This goes back to when Larry Greenbaum was the president of ASPN. And I... Uh, pitched the idea to him and I thought uh, it was cool because I was attending ASN and they were recording their podcast. So I, I just joined them for their recording and I saw how much interaction and how many people actually listen to their podcast. They have the data. Um, I went back to Larry and I told him, can we do this? Of course, ASPN at that time was not as rich as now. <laughs> if we can use the word rich. <laughs> We did not have that much funding. So it was so nice of Dr. Greenbaum to um, find the resources for us to buy the initial mics and the recorder to start our um, um, uh, a podcast. And um, I found that everybody at that time and later also enjoyed those podcasts. So yes, um, I think it's uh, ha having... Um, a team member who is interested in new ideas or bringing up new ideas and having the leadership that listens and um, believes in those ideas, both are needed. Thank you, Ibrahim. And I think, and I want to thank you especially for uh, letting me do the AS, uh, forming ASP and FOAM group and spread uh, our webinars via tutorials. I want to thank you especially for it. You are always, always supportive. You're welcome. And I have to admit that I'm so proud of what you have done in, in the uh, social media group and the, I mean, uh, and the uh, communications committee right now, where you have taken this um, a small one-man show effort to what it is right now. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see uh, the group and the team building on what has been 
a one-man show and now it's uh, amazing. We have not only Facebook and Twitter, but Instagram and this podcast that is well-organized and um, much more mature than when we started. So kudos to you and congratulations. I can't. Podcast is completely Sudaji's. <laughs> I'm just promoting it's, it. <laughs> it's going from strength to strength. And I think it's just being, you know, pushed by all the love on Twitter. So uh, really, uh, it's the community coming together. And that's what I think um, has happened this year, because we are not seeing each other in person. So this podcast has become our little evening social. Um, but uh, I also want to say that Things are coming down the pipeline. Watch this space because uh, even though this is the last episode of the conference podcast, we are going to have regularly scheduled uh, series of podcasts for the ASPN. I'm not at liberty to release anything about it. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, watch this space. There are good things happening and uh, the communication team is hard at work so that all of us can learn and have some fun along the way. I did want to make one comment. I don't know who was responsible for it listening to the podcast, but I'm going to tell you that I love the introductory music, you know, as it's starting. (laughs) It is so great, right? It just gets you kind of revved up and you're intrigued and, you know. Thank you. I picked it. Uh, Actually, there is a whole, uh, it's it's the internet, right? Because uh, lots of free music is available, non-copyrighted, that is for use for podcasts. So it's kind of like the community uh, donates this music that they make. So I picked one which I thought would be appropriate. Uh, And, uh, you know, so it's just something that I picked up from uh, the podcast community and used it. That's all. (laughs) But yes, I love it. It gets you all queued up, right? <laughs> Perfect. Great. Now we just needed. Now didn't we just need an ASPN TikTok account? Oh, <laughs> yes, um, Andrew, you should start it with your dance. I don't think anyone Andrew wants that. Andrew for TikTok. Oof. Andrew for TikTok. Tweets keep me in your shouldn't have said that. Great at TikTok. You could show us some of those rumba moves. Yes. Oh, I just yes. Walked, he that should be the one exactly we got I walked right into that. It's, it's a it's a rumbatorial that's what it, it's going to get even better we're going we're going to get you to to tell us what the risk factors for uh, cardiovascular health are set to little nas and you'll have to uh do uh, all of your... at them i think i should retire now <laughs> and Ibrahim, as the father of ASPN social media we will definitely have to get you on the gram Yes. All right. Well, uh, we have still a lot of uh, ASPN programming to talk about on this uh, podcast tonight. Um, So we will move on to the vasculitis session. Um, But um, interestingly, one of the talks in the vasculitis session was also hypertension. It's everywhere. (laughs) Today is hypertension day. Um, uh, I have one question before we start vasculitis. So, Stephanie, what's your favorite vasculitis? What's my favorite vasculitis? Um, I love lupus. And I don't love people to have it, but I love lupus um, and have been working for a long time trying to put together um, a lupus guiding team, a lupus clinic. Um, We've really made some headway this year, but... um, That's my favorite vasculitis for whatever it's worth. You know, the very first slide corrected a big misconception I had about lupus all along. I always thought that it was from lupa, wolf, because like sheep and wolf's clothing kind of thing. But apparently it's because of the butterfly rash looking like a wolf has mauled you. Right. (laughs) I didn't know that either, actually. And I'm a huge medical historian, so I'm a little embarrassed about that. But yeah, it's uh, it was a great way to start the talk. So. Yes, I've got a couple questions for you, Stephanie, about, sure. about vasculitis sessions. Um, the first one, actually, Layla, who was going to help us uh, host the podcast today, but couldn't be with us. But she wanted to ask how you felt about the advocate trial with the mean age being 60 years of age, if it's really generalizable to the pediatric public. Yeah, that that was um, an, an, an interesting one. I, I'm going to just uh, let me just back up just a little bit, because I think it was just an absolutely fabulous session. <laughs> I mean, it was really, really good. Um, and um, 
you know, all total, we had um, uh, three uh, pediatric nephrologists, and really we had two pediatric rheumatologists because Dr. Sean Jackson is actually board certified in both. Uh, apparently he's, I guess, the only one in the country who's board, board certified in both pediatric nephrology and rheumatology. And so in speaking about that trial, it was rather interesting because of course, one of the endpoints was looking at mortality. And, and, and that is probably, and a lot of that mortality was from in, in infection and, um, and, and maybe just age-related factors. And so it was a comment made today that it, would, it is kind of hard to look at the outcomes of, of some of those trials because the age range is, is very, very far off. And in addition, um, you know, it's hard to, uh, we know that our pediatric population can probably tolerate immunosuppression that adults cannot. And so um, because of some of those um, infectious outcomes, uh, frankly. And so um, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but it was commented on in um, the talk about that, that trial. Yeah, and I agree, it was a great session. I'm so glad you highlighted um, the speakers in rheumatology and nephrology, that is truly a feat. <laughs> yes, yes, so he's, um, but also we had uh, Keisha Gibson, who is a nephrologist um, at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, we had Damien uh, Noon, who is a nephrologist in Toronto. And then we had one of uh, Don and I's colleagues uh, in um, pediatric rheumatology, Dr. Kelly Rouster-Stevens. And we got to give a, a nice shout out to her because we had someone who was unfortunately not able to continue to be a part of the session. And I asked Kelly on Monday night if she would step in and she recorded the talk on Friday. So, um, and, did a, and did a terrific job. And then as part of the discussion at the end, again, it was just all of us in the rheumatology and nephrology um, uh, world sort of talking about what we share, which is definitely lots of patients with vasculitis, primarily lupus and um, ANCO related vasculitis. Definitely. And a huge shout out to Kelly doing that at the last minute. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. She did yeah. a lovely job. And another good example of just the collaboration and overlap of all the different um, pediatric subspecialties. We all need each other to be successful. Right. So what do you feel like were the kind of most important general takeaways from the vasculitis session today? So I think I'll start with the positive takeaway. <laughs> and that is that um, there are a lot of uh, new medications on the horizon, right? And, and that was pretty exciting um, to talk about. So um, uh, Keisha uh, Gibson talked about a couple of uh, new drugs coming, uh, well, that are, that are recently, right, FDA approved. So one is, of course, I'm going to probably, you know, muck this up, Belamumab, right? Well, let's just call it Benlista, right? right? And so we've got that as an add-on drug in some of our more refractory um, lupus patients. And I know that we've started to use some of that in, in our mm -hmm. institution. And then also um, Voclosporin, which is um, a cousin, it's not exactly like the calcineurin inhibitors that we use um, uh, today, cyclosporin and, and Prograf, but it, it, she says it's more like a cousin, but that's the new oral medication also um, uh, that has been approved to use in lupus. And um, it looks like it's really going to be a great thing as a, as a prednisone um, sparing or even uh, eliminating drugs. So without um, hopefully all of the, the side effects that we normally see from our calcineurin inhibitor. So really exciting um, information on that. And then if we switch over to um, our uh, ANCA vasculitis and looking at some of those studies, um, Dr. Jackson and Dr. Noon both talked about the C5A receptor um, inhibitor vacopan. <laughs> which is not approved for use yet, but um, it is, you know, it's really exciting um, to think about being able to, to use this, this medication um, and, and, um, and some of our, uh, and ANCA vasculitis and it and may, because it, it affects part of the, the complement cascade may be able to use, be used in some of the other diseases that, that we see. So that was, that was sort of the very exciting piece. Um, the other thing that, that came out of the talk is, is frankly, 
how much we don't know, right? What is still muddy? That was sort of the, the, the title of the last talk in that, you know, um, a lot of the a lot of the trials are, are not large enough. Uh, they have, a lot of the historical trials are, are with older adults. Um, and so we just have a lot of work to do. We have a lot in our um, armamentarium against these diseases, but but we still need to get um, better at what is really the best pathway, what is the best timing of drugs. But I think everyone's overall sense is if we never have to give steroids again, we'd all be good with that, right? So it, it was really, um, I think those were some of the, the highlights for me. And then just the Q&A session at the end, I think we could have stayed on far longer. Um, it, it was there was just some really nice discussion, um, at least amongst the five of us. So. <laughs> And then, and then, um, and then some of the questions that, that came through. So that's, that's my overview of the session. Yeah. I think we could definitely have a whole podcast on vasculitis as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I just, I just put my first patient on Ben Lister. So <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and Voclosporin is interesting. I've seen some discussion about it on PEDNEF too. So, you know, um, it's, it's interesting to see, um, you know, how it'll change our management of patients in the, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, mm -hmm. One fun fact, we have a rheumatologist called Ben who loves Ben Lister. <laughs> <laughs> so fitting. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been a long day and it has uh, sort of marked the end of phase one of uh, our ASPN programming. I can see Maury smiling <laughs> because <laughs> yes, indeed, there is a phase two, which apparently I completely forgot about. <laughs> so so uh, I think that we will ask Maury to uh, tell us what else is coming in ASPN uh, annual conference. Yeah, so um, we made it through four days, yay! So, um, and I, I just wanted to thank everybody who's on the on the podcast today for moderating the sessions uh, today. It was a it was a really great day with lots of really good um, science and clinical medicine uh, being discussed. So, thank you all for participating in the program. It was great. Um, I did want to uh, sort of remind people um, that uh, uh, you get the weekend off, but things start up again next next week. So on Monday, the Chesney Memorial Lecture is going to be starting May 10th at 9 a.m. Um, this one, uh, this year, the uh, focus is on medical education and nephrology. So there will be lots of really interesting discussions from some amazing leaders in education, both from within nephrology and outside of nephrology, who uh, can speak to some of the, the really um, significant changes that are going on in medical education at both the undergraduate and postgraduate levels. Uh, coming up on May 13th, we will have another workshop on uh, developing the research program that you always wanted, uh, and uh, that will be happening at 1 p.m. on the 13th of May. Um, it'll uh, give a really um, good overview of how to get engaged with industry or how to uh, look for funding sources, uh, get involved in some of the registry type things. Great um, lectures, both, both workshops actually, great um, opportunities for fellows to get involved and see some of the things that, um, that you need to appreciate when you get into uh, academic medicine. Um, I do want to put a plug in for May 14th at two o'clock in the afternoon. It's the AGM. Uh, for ASPN, so uh, try and attend uh, so that you can hear updates from all of the committees and see exactly how vibrant things have been given the pandemic. Um, and then we finish off May on May 24th with the infamous You're in the Know workshop. Um, and so this is a combination of, uh, of mini platform uh, sessions that are from chosen uh, published papers from early faculty and, and trainees that have been published in the last year. So it's very current. Uh, we picked the top four uh, that, that go in there and a, a shout out to Kim Reedy who um, organized uh, and selected uh, and guided the selection for uh, the articles for uh, the sessions this year. So there's some great talks, both um, basic science and uh, clinical medicine. And then we have some uh, le lectures that are being given by faculty. And this year we decided uh, to go with nephrology as the quality specialty. We know that it is, uh, but we're talking about quality improvement. And um, this is uh, quickly becoming an area of academic um, 
focus for many people um, who may not be completely uh, immersed in research, but have a very strong interest in having clinical um, uh, efforts and, uh, and processes to improve clinical outcomes and clinical processes. So um, there are, um, are several great lectures that are uh, coming uh, uh, through there uh, from some very established people who've run programs in nephrotic syndrome or ninja um, or even just discussing mechanisms or me uh, processes for doing quality improvement. So again, these are great sessions for anybody who's already established, but also for people who are coming through in uh, fellowship and early uh, early uh, academic medicine. So try and um, make time for that. That's uh, last one is on May 24th at 9 a.m. All of those are gonna be live. So um, <laughs> buckle up, it's gonna be a fun ride because you never know what's gonna happen when you go live. <laughs> so I, I think this was the busiest Tuesday at PAS ever. I agree. I agree. And, you know, I, I think I tweeted about this. I was like, oh, usually I'm like, when's my flight? When do, what, when do I need to walk out of this session? And today it was like, oh, great. I don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, but uh, Mari, I do have a question for you. And I don't know, like, what was the thought process behind phase one, phase two? Uh, when we all meet in person, we get everything done in five days. So why did we decide to stretch this out yeah so I, I think the one of the criticisms that, that comes up every year with PAS is that there's so much happening all at the same time and it's hard to get to everything all at once and I think um, Dr. Pat Brophy kind of addressed this in one of the previous podcasts that um, the fact that you have a lot of recorded sessions um, allows you to to still participate in sessions that would have otherwise been, been scheduled conflicts. And um, so you can actually get a lot more out of this um, conference. Um, the reason for extending into phase two is that most of the stuff in phase two are, are, is almost exclusively workshop. So it's more interactive and it's all live. So um, they, in order to eliminate or reduce the conflicts um, with programs, it's, it's stretched through the entire month. And in some respects, it's um, even a bigger opportunity for people to, to participate in those types of things. And there's tons of things going on. It's not just um, ASPN. There's lots of stuff in education and research and um, uh, other specialties have represented uh, in workshops. There's a, a huge amount of information that you can pick and choose from. All of it is being live recorded. Um, so you can go back to it and review it um, as, a, as a resource later on if you're unable to participate. Um, and I should also point out that the material from the phase one is actually going to be available um, on the um, Cadmium platform until uh, end of January 2023. So you have um, oh, pardon me, uh, 2022, sorry. <laughs> like, wow. oh, that's really generous. That's, a re that's really generous. It's 2022. So it will be on the Cadmium um, platform until 2022. Uh, so you have access to all of the sessions, um, the abstracts, the posters, um, all of the uh, live sessions Q&A um, are there. All of the, the um, sessions that were um, live streamed like the Schnapper Memorial session and the Spitzer um, lectures, those will all be available uh, for, for several more months for people to um, access. And if you are intending to actually access those, I, I'd recommend that you hold off submitting your CME credits because you, mm -hmm. uh, you only have one chance to submit them. So once you submit them, you you, you won't be able to re, um, resubmit them with additional sessions. So um, take a look at what, what's in the program, things that you, you missed. Um, this, more than any other program, you have an opportunity to go back and look at lectures that you wouldn't have had to, uh, an opportunity to do so in the past. Yes, it's almost like May has become kidney month for us. <laughs> it's wonderful. And congratulations uh, on successful completion of phase one. Uh, this has been an amazing, amazing program. We've really enjoyed it. Hats off to you and kudos to your team for and the program committee for such excellent offerings this year. Thank you so much. I, I did just want to highlight two things um, or two people that um, before we uh, close out, um, because I wanted to recognize the people who are the ASPN uh, research awardees um, for basic and uh, um, clinical research. So um, I wanted to congratulate uh, Russell Whelan, who gave a phenomenal talk on 
um, uh, pharmacologic inhibition of shikatoxin receptor expression uh, in, a, in a really innovative 2D model um, that really showed that um, existing drugs that are FDA approved actually do block uh, shikatoxin binding on its receptor. And so in, in an in vitro model, so this was very exciting um, for uh, E. coli related or um, shikatoxin producing um, infections that cause HUS. So it's very exciting uh, research and um, impressive for somebody who's so junior to, uh, to do that. And he actually was chosen uh, to speak at the SPR Plenary as part of the best of SPR featured abstract. So uh, congratulations to him. And then uh, the second person I wanted to highlight is um, uh, Dr. Douglas, who is a third year PEDS resident uh, based at Seattle. Um, actually, both uh, trainees are from Seattle. So Seattle wins the brass ring this year. Um, so um, the uh, uh, issue with uh, the, the topic that she uh, was uh, speaking on was in the hypertension session. And uh, what she uh, did is uh, looking within the CK cohort is I was actually identifying that there are significant underdiagnosed and under-recognized uh, cases of hypertension in the zero to seven-year-old um, age group, which is a really important uh, um, finding. And I think we're looking uh, forward to hearing more from Dr. Douglas in the future because she's about to start her fellowship in ufology. So that's uh, two great um, uh, people who are uh, very deserving of these awards. I just wanted to recognize them for the hard work. Yes, absolutely. Congratulations to all the award winners. Uh, and I think that includes one of our panelists, Dr. South also has had a recent award. Come on, Andrew, tell us. Tell us. It's okay. I'm trying to remember what you There's so many, right? <laughs> I wish. No. Was it a cardiology? Uh, yeah, so um a paper. Yes. Yes. So uh, my paper with Mark Chappell and Deborah is here at Wake Forest, who are my mentors. The reason I'm at Wake Forest, um, we published a, an extensive review on the role of the renin angiotensin system and specifically the um, enzyme ACE2 during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, published in AJP, uh, Heart and Circulatory Physiology. And we won the 2020 High Impact Award um, tied with, with another paper, a great paper as well. So that was um, very fun <laughs> and unexpected. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you very <laughs> so, much. So I also wanted to um, just highlight the Barnett Awards. Um, so uh, 2020, there wasn't uh, an in-person award ceremony. So uh, the 2020 and the 2021 awards are being um, uh, uh, given out on the 13th of May at 1230. That's actually just before the, the research um, workshop. So um, plan to attend a bit earlier. Um, the awardees for 2020 and 2021 are Vicki Norwood. She used to be my program director, so I'm super excited uh, that she has been honored for this. So deserving. Um, and I, um, very excited for her. And then John Mahan, uh, who was on uh, earlier as the podcast. I, again, I can't think of two more deserving people for uh, these acknowledgements. Both of them have done such amazing work in um, in both advocacy and education, and uh, they've um, it's well overdue that they uh, receive some acknowledgement for the hard work that they've done. So. Absolutely. Of course, uh, Dr. Bain was on the podcast earlier. Uh, and uh, Dr. Norwood, of course, I am the proud owner of a personally signed autographed renal pathology book from her when I won Urin the No as a fellow. <laughs> so so uh, excellent. It couldn't have gone to two more wonderful and deserving people. And uh, when was the date again? Uh, so that's May, May 13th. Yeah, May 13th, yeah. we will watch out for that yeah. and uh, congratulate them over Zoom. Yeah, 12.30 um, p.m. All right. Well, it's been a long hour. It's been a long day for you hypertension folks. So <laughs> we're going, we're ready for our final happy hour. Everybody raise your glasses. Santa, so got to give the code. I didn't say, but I'm from Texas originally and tomorrow is Cinco de Mayo. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so of there's, course, oh my gosh, how can I forget this? May the fourth oh, be with yeah. you. Right. Yeah, may <laughs> the fourth be with you. Of course. Right. And I, yeah. I'm going to try it. Everybody okay. smile. It's like I was, was going to make the crack that all I have is water because anything that was worth drinking got dialyzed away. <laughs> <laughs> 
as nephrologists, we should all be drinking water, but you know, <laughs> what was that thing with from glaucom plectin was is homeostasis a joke to you <laughs> you know what's smarter than a brain two million nephrons two million nephrons <laughs> exactly <laughs> and do you not was, believe uh, in homeostasis i think was the comment <laughs> do you have no faith in homeostasis and then it is said that like the dumbest nephron is smarter than the smartest neuron <laughs> it's true. I agree. I agree. I, like I said, this is a biased crowd. So, <laughs> all right. TikTok dance by Faith too. You think? Hmm? TikTok dance from Andrew. Oh yeah, yes. Oh yes. wow. Andrew. Okay, so here. That might be PAS twenty twenty three. Takeaways. Takeaways from podcast. The sediment first year is. One, Dave Saluski needs a Twitter account. I really Two, tried. Andrew South needs to start a TikTok. <laughs> Andrew for rumbatorial. And ASPN president, Dr. Somers, needs to be on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. We're getting close. We at least have unanimous uh, support for his Twitter handle. We just need to get him to fill out the paperwork. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it has been a wonderful year chatting with all of you, the, you know, uh, people who are driving research forward in our field. And I look forward to Denver, where we will get together and maybe talk some more about Ship Ahoy and hypertension, vasculitis and lupus, which is um, Stephanie's favorite vasculitis, (laughs) right? (laughs) But but Suda, Um, I I also just want to quickly say that um, this meeting is really unique because uh, with the last year with the pandemic, people have had to shut down and, um, and batten down the hatches. And I think what's really interesting uh, is that people have remained really productive and innovative. And I take away from this meeting that um, there's a lot of resilience and a lot of innovation in our community. And I think that needs to be acknowledged and celebrated that, um, that, you know, this happened during a pandemic. People had limited access to their labs, to patients, et cetera. People still published, people still taught, people still saw patients. Um, all are, are not small, uh, um, should not be underestimated as achievements. So I think it's really important that we acknowledge that with this year, we still were able to have what I think was a, a really fun meeting with lots of great, great talks and great science. And that uh, is even sweeter with, in the context of a, of a pandemic. I just wanted to acknowledge the hard work of everybody who's who's participated in in putting this program together because it's been I I've really enjoyed it, but I'm biased. Here, here. Very well said. Very well said. Agreed. Mari. Well and said. That's, that's an excellent spot to end the uh, podcast. Thank you all for coming on. It has been great. I've had a lot of fun, uh, and uh, thank you to the organizers and all of our guests over the past five days. All of our hosts, most of whom have been from the communications committee. Thank you to Dr. Shatat for being here today with us from Doha. And uh, I hope that everybody has a lot of uh good, educative, uh, productive time looking at all the talks that you have missed, which you can now um, have on until 2022. <laughs> and and um, we will, we will, we also have the Chesney Memorial lectureship coming up like Dr. Pins told us uh, on Monday. Um, and um, our Twitter's favorite uh, medical education activist, Brian Carmody will be on uh, because uh, I learned a lot about step one being pass fail from him. So, <laughs> so uh, we unfortunately will not be broadcasting phase two, um, but we will be back with sediment next year at Denver. Uh, and thank you all. Good night and stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>